Good morning, everyone. Well, it's been a while, hasn't it, since we were in Genesis. Um, most of us probably forget um, where we have been in it. We're in chapter 28. Um, <clears throat> so let's just briefly look. Is that okay? Is there any whistling there? No whistling, is there? Um, let's briefly remind ourselves of the backstory to today's message. Um, Jacob, that old rogue, a.k.a. Sir Planter, deceiver, heel holder. Uh, he's tricked his brother into selling his birthright to him for basically a bowl of soup, and then in cahoots with his mom, Rebecca. He deceives old Isaac, who's not very good in sight, into bestowing the covenant blessings on him instead of the older brother, Jacob, or Esau. So as you can, as you can imagine, Esau is fuming. Um, he goes around ranting and raving, you can only imagine. A word on the street has it that he wants to get even with his brother Jacob, and he's planning to dispatch Jacob once his father dies. So this is the backdrop of the story today. Anyways, um, Jacob is tipped off about these intentions of Esau. Isaac instructs him to go back up to where his father Abraham is from, roughly up that area, to find himself a wife and probably let things cool down a bit. And Jacob complies to the request, and that's where our story starts today. So let's pray anyways before we begin and look at um, the continuation of this. Lord, we just thank you that um, you've given us your word. We thank you that uh, even though these stories seem to us this morning here in Galway perhaps a little bit distant, perhaps uh, in, in some ways non-relevant, but Father, uh, because you've touched us with your spirit, we can see that the way you deal with these people of old is exactly the same way you deal with us. Um, we can see so much of Jacob in ourselves. Um, it's just amazing. And yet you were um, uh, so gracious in how you dealt with him, um, so gracious how you steered his, uh, uh, how shall I say it, his uh, rebellious character uh, to follow your wishes and to follow your... Um, your plan of salvation from the beginning of time. So, Father, help us this morning to uh, ponder these things, help us to apply perhaps some of the stuff we see in this old scripture this morning to our own lives, help it to become afresh to us and relevant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we take up the story with Jacob. He's on the run, and we can only imagine what's going through his head at this time. Um, he's had to leave his family in haste. It's never a good thing. And by the time he leaves, or by the time he returns, which is about 21 years later, his mom has died. Now, he would never see her again anyways in this life. It looks like his streak of deceptiveness has finally caught up with him. But it's not all bad. At least it seems that his dad's shock and annoyance at what Jacob has done to him, and it was bad, it seems that has been tempered a little bit. At least they're on speaking terms again as Isaac blesses him for this journey ahead and sends him, up, um, sends him up on this journey back to the home place to find a wife. And you know what? We can see little hints here that Jacob is not exactly a totally rebellious boy. He's a good little boy. He complies. He does do what his dad and his mom ask him to do. And even this complying of, of Jacob to his mom and dad's wishes rubs off a little bit on that other rogue, Esau who sees that because Jacob is going up to take a wife for himself who's not a Canaanite woman, says, you know what, I might take a couple of them as well. 
try and get back into mom and dad's good books, maybe. Maybe all is not lost. So unfortunately, though, he takes two wives from the family of Ishmael. And we can see in the Bible that line beginning to go off on its own different direction. Jacob certainly is the blessed boy. But let's put ourselves in Jacob's shoes as we're on the run. He's no spring chicken. He's about 78 years old. Now, considering he lived until he was about 147, that's only about middle age, really. So if we look at it like that, there was still a little bit of, little bit of energy left in him. But anyways, it's not a small journey. It's about 600 miles from where he was up to Haran. And they would have been 600 tough miles. And by the looks of things, according to the experts on these things, he wasn't taking the direct route. He was taking a sort of roundabout way, I suppose, in case Esau kept up with him. But how would you feel if you were in his shoes? You've just left everything you love, everyone you love, everything you know. You're 78 years old. You've had a lot of time for these habits or these style of life to become a habit and familiar and comfortable with you. You're lonely. You're probably haunted by, by guilt of what you've done, perhaps. You're hurt. Um, you've realized that you've taken things into your own hands, along with perhaps someone who should have known better, your mom. You jumped ahead of God, and you now know that you're kind of paying the price. Bad enough it was being a sojourner in the land, but now Jacob is a fugitive. He's on the run. And as I said before, he'll never see his mom again. So anyways, Jacob sets off, and we can only suppose after about 50 miles, they reckon, which would have been several days' journey, depending on how tough the terrain was, he comes to, as the Bible calls, if you look there in your text, he looks, or he finds himself in a certain place. Now, the place is mentioned a couple of times, or actually it's mentioned, I think, six or seven times in this passage today. So the writer is trying to draw ourselves to this place, this certain place. And verse 11b, or the second half of 11, 11 says, Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, things are tough on Jacob as they are, aren't they? <laughs> you can just imagine, why on earth would you go and take a stone while you're on this extreme camping and put it under your head for a pillow? I mean, that's not going to make things any easier at all to those of us today maybe who are used to the latest memory foam or down foam pillows. Surely there must be more to the text than meets the eye. And the text, while it can mean this, that he put the stone under his head, it can also indicate that stones of the place were placed beside his head or around his head. It still doesn't envisage a great story of comfort, though, does it? But the next handful of verses do give us comfort, and they certainly must have given Jacob comfort. If we look at verses 12 to 15, and we read them through just to get the gist of the whole passage, and then we'll break them down a bit. Verse 12 says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
Behold, I am, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, up to this point, if you read the pre-story, we don't really see or we don't really get a very clear picture of how deep Jacob's relationship was with God or, you know, what case or what state was his spiritual state in. All we can really read into the text that came before is he does seem to be a bit of a devious and certainly a bit of a selfish man. He's not exactly the sort of character that would merit God calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many times over and over and again in the Bible. But you know what? This is different now. God reveals himself to Jacob in his dream theophany. So Jacob, in this dream, sees this sort of ladder, or maybe a better translation would be stairway, reaching from the earth up to the heaven. And on it, you have angels descending and ascending. It's rather strange. What does it mean, I wonder? Now, some of you as students of the Bible here might think straight away, oh, that, that kind of sounds a bit like Babel, doesn't it? That there was this tower being built up into the heavens from the earth where the people at that time were trying to reach God, unfortunately, under their own steam, under their own effort, under their own work. But you get the idea. They were trying to have relationship with God. It was totally upside down. But in this case, the people, like the people of Babel who had dreams of going up and down the steps. They're not going up and down these steps. It's angels that are ascending and descending. And it's God himself who's standing at the top. Or the text might also indicate beside Jacob. They're not exactly sure. But anyways, the picture is God is here. He's in this place. There is a vision or a dream of a ladder or a stairway going from earth to heaven with angels descending and ascending. Now, actually, this idea of a stairway up to heaven is, is, was quite common in those cultures. And it had a meaning. It signified something. It symbolized something. It symbolized that this particular place had divine presence. And this stairway was sort of a picture of mediation. Somewhere where the gods could meet with man. So this is kind of the vision that Jacob has had. And we have to think at this time as well that the Yahweh worship system, if that's the right word, is still quite new. I mean, after the flood, it's, it's Abraham who's kicked things off again, and Isaac, and now we're at Jacob. So often when we think of, you know, the Old Testament characters like these people, we think that they're, you know, they were a bit like us. They came to church every Sunday. They, they did things in an organized fashion. They had organized worship. It probably wasn't entirely like that. So we can see imports from the culture around them being applied by God to speak to Jacob, so to speak. This vision of the ladder, which would speak to his heart. In other words, a symbol of the presence of God himself. Not just a symbol, but he was there. And it's worth noting himself that Jesus himself uses this exact, um, exact line again in John 1.5.1. Gospel of John, when he says, speaking to Nathaniel, remember when Nathaniel was under the fig tree and Jesus came up to him and said, I saw you before I was speaking to Philip under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, boy, how, how did you know that? And Nathaniel then, or Nathaniel then realizes that he's in the presence of the Son of God. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. 
And Jesus responded with this exact text nearly. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what we Christians take from this saying, at least, is that Jesus himself is our mediator. He's the go-between between heaven and earth. It's the way that sinful man, us, can meet with a holy God. Now, unlike the wrong notions that the people of Babel held, there was no way under their own effort that they could ever, ever reach the heavens and certainly never reach God. God in his mercy has to come down and reveal himself to them, to us, to reach down, so to speak. When he said in John, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no way you can come to the Father except through the Father revealing himself in Christ, through Christ's finished work on the cross on your behalf, and then the Father can do business with you. So what Jesus meant was that he was the ladder. He was the stairway by which the Father could be reached. And, and getting back to the text again, we see the Father, Yahweh, speaks with Jacob from the stairway and repeats, this is what he does, he repeats the covenant promises made to Jacob's grandfather, and father. Now, we've seen these before several times, haven't we? I mean, they were repeated to Isaac as well. You know, the, the promises of a land, of offspring, that the nations will be blessed through him, and that God shall be with them, or that he shall be blessed. Now, it's slightly different, you might notice. It's not exactly the same, but the same gist certainly is regarding the one uh, regarding where it says that, remember, in, in when God spoke to Abraham, he said that you shall be blessed, and all the nations around you that treat you well shall also be blessed. He doesn't quite say that to Jacob here. He, he kind of makes it a little bit more personable, the message which we look at later on. But all I can say is, and all you might notice is, imagine you're Jacob, and you're on the run, and you're hurt, and you're guilty, and you're lonesome, and you suddenly meet the God who your father and your forefathers have spoken about, and this is the message he gives you. Jacob, at this point, has to see a huge change. He's gone from being a man on his own, on the run, into the very company of Yahweh. He's gone from being a man on the run to being a man who God has caught up with. He's gone from a man who has had a kind of a small, selfish view of life to being a man who is now being given a vision of the future. And he's been a man who has not heard from God to now a man who has heard the very words of God spoken to him. When a man hears from God, or a woman hears from God, that word begins changes in your life. Jacob will never be the same again. This is a great moment in Jacob's life. He's 78 years old. It took 78 years old for God to speak to this man. Even though Jacob has lived in a family that has been chosen by God to carry out his covenant promises, he's been most blessed in that day, a family, no doubt, where there would have been plenty of talk about God and what God had done in their lives, the wonderful things that God had done in their lives, the wonderful ways that they have been blessed. We get no point or no hint up to this point that Jacob is a man of great faith. You know, if we think about it, people today might find themselves in a similar situation. 
They might have been brought up in a Christian household, or they might have had dealings with Christians, maybe neighbors, and they've noticed that they've benefited from these neighbors. They've seen the love of Christ work in their neighbors towards them. They've been shown grace and mercy, perhaps, in uh, times when they didn't deserve it. And yet they themselves have never experienced a flicker of faith in their lives. And they never will until God comes and invades their life, like he did with Jacob here. Jacob would have heard about God meeting his grandfather Abraham, about the covenant promises. He would have seen the blessings in his life. He would have seen the promise that God made to Abraham that they would own the land eventually come through. Okay, only the smart part. They only owned a tomb at this stage. He would have seen how God had blessed the family. And he would have seen that any of the nations nearby who had treated this family well were also treated well by God. And yet, even though in his own life, even though he'd been ex exposed to all these wonderful blessings, that he was exposed to godly men and women, he still thought he knew better and was trying to do things his own way, not submitting to the will of the Father, not submitting to the will of God, but under the guidance of his mother, who should have known better, grabbed the covenant blessings, making a fool out of Isaac and an enemy out of Esau. And it's only now when God meets with Jacob that he begins to see, to really see who God is. And he begins to really see who he is. Look at verse 17. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. It's natural, I suppose, that Jacob, this rogue, once he meets his maker, fears a little. He realizes now that everything has changed. His life that had changed so much just a couple of whatever weeks, months beforehand has now changed again, this time for the better. This language here is rather strange, isn't it? The house of God, the gate to heaven. Well, the gate to heaven would have been very common in the cultural understandings of that time. Babylon, in fact, meant gate of the gods. So again, we kind of find um, cultural um, throwbacks in the scriptures here. But in effect, what, what Jacob is saying here is that this place where God revealed himself is the living place, the very house of God. And when any man or any woman finds themselves in the house of God, they're in the presence of its owner. Who invites them to fellowship with them. Note the warm, gracious words of God. Behold, I am with you and I'll keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I mean, what more appropriate words could God speak to Jacob at that time? A man who was on the run, who was, danger, who was in danger, definitely who was fearful, who was lonely, discouraged, thinking that perhaps he had lost all the covenant promises now that he'd fled the land, turned his back on everything, so to speak. And God says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I mean, straight away he's got hope. He's going to see his folks again. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You see, when God reveals himself to you, and many of us in this room can attest to this, 
Your deepest needs, your need for forgiveness, matters of the soul, they're all met. But so are your smallest needs. This is what he did with Jacob. Even though he felt alone, God was now with him. Though he felt he might have messed up the covenant promise, God now assures him that's not the case. You know, you might be thinking about what God has done in your life as you're reading God's interaction with Jacob here. You know, what words of, of comfort when you met with God, first of all, did he give you? Has he been faithful in keeping his promises to you? Has he provided for you? David in Psalm 23, in that lovely Psalm, in verse 5, he says, You prepare, speaking about God, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It was David's desire to be close to God. We saw in Psalm 27, which I preached on a while back, that David said that he, his desire was to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's lovely language. It's the language, intimate language of someone who really knows God, someone who's seen the face of God. Jacob now has seen this and he recognizes that God is in this place. Now, it might have been an error of him to say that. I mean, God is everywhere, isn't he? Nevertheless, David, whose desire it was now to dwell in God's presence, whose desire it was always to dwell in God's presence, he now, Jacob, has the desire to honor God or to honor the presence of God in this place. And he does it in two ways. He has two sort of spiritual reactions or religious actions to this. The first is early the next morning, the stone that was his pillow, he sets up as a pillar. Now, this was corresponding to his granddad's habit as well of setting up altars and Isaac to the Lord. It seems to have been a pattern in these three men's lives. And what he does then as well is he renames the place which was formerly Luz. He renames it, which means almond tree. He renames it Bethel, the house of God. Now, there's, there's no reason to believe that Jacob at this point was setting up this pillar to worship it. That's not at all what was going on. The pillar just symbolized Jacob's dedication to the Lord, as expressed in the vow, which is to do next. You see, Jacob is a changed man now in ways. He's not the full article yet. He's not gleaming and shining yet, but he's changed. And he's dedicating this life now. He's dedicating this change. What he's seen of the Lord now, he's dedicating in the, um, in the pillar which he sets up. And the site, it's, it's not a sanctuary in the material sense, even though when he returns from uh, spending 21 years with his, with his relative Laban working for him, when he returns back that way again, he does build an altar there uh, on which I'm sure he offers some of the, um, some of the great riches and blessings which he's got up there. But God himself acknowledges in Genesis 31, if you want to make note of this, Genesis 31, chapter 13, about 21 years later, God calls him out from, uh, from, from the land which was uh, his kin's land. And he says in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, 
and return to the land of your kindred. So there was nothing wrong with the vow that um, Jacob made, even though in the New Testament we're warned that there's all sorts of warnings and directives about vows. But the second response, anyways, of Jacob is to make this vow. Now, a vow is just something simple. It's just a, a promise made to God to perform or, or even to abstain from something. And we can see that many people in the Bible made, made, made vows. Hannah, Samuel's mom, remember, made a vow. Um, Jephthah made vows. But Jacob here makes a vow. Let's have a look at it now and see what exactly is in it. Verses 20, 21, and 22. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with you and will keep you in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of that that you give me, I will give a full tenth of it, or tenth to you. So he's asking for three things in the vow, all right? He's asking in verse 20 for God's divine protection and presence. In verse 22, he's asking, he's going to, asking, he's, he's going to dedicate the site to God as part of his vow. And the third part is he's, he's going to offer a tithe. So he's anticipating by offering a tithe. He's anticipating that when he returns one day to this site again, that he will have something to sacrifice. And indeed he did when he came back from working with Laban, he came back with two wives and many, many uh, livestock, or much livestock, which he probably offered up on this site as a remembrance to what had happened on that 21 years or 21 years previously. Now, just reading that yourselves, what, what do you think of it? What do you think of that vow? Does it sound reasonable? Does it sound godly? You know, some say that this was as profound a vow that Jacob could be expected to do at this point of his life. And, and you know, that we can see that it, would be very, it was very admirable the awe he expressed towards God, whom he just encountered, and not for the things that God promised him. He wasn't thinking about the material things. He was in awe of God and the presence of God. So that's good, isn't it? And, you know... He really didn't ask for anything different. He really only asked for what God was already going to promise him. If you look at the text, really. Um, these people who hold to this particular view, they also claim that he held, he held a good view to the tithe. He didn't regard the tithe as some sort of gift, but he regarded it as a giving back. I have to think tithes were not probably very common at this time. It wasn't as if the priesthood uh, had come about and tithing was a very common thing. So... He showed a good heart there. Now, others kind of look at that text and they kind of go, mm, there's a bit of the old Jacob still in there. They smell bargaining here. If you do this, I'll do that. They contrast his situation with Jacob's situation. Remember, God tested Abraham. Here it seems that Jacob is testing God. You know, Jacob's puts, Jacob puts conditions on God, perhaps. Uh, before God can benefit from his promises, as if God didn't need, or if God ne meant or needed any affirmation from, from Jacob. They say perhaps that he presumed on the grace of God a bit. But whatever you think of this, it's very important, and these people 
who look on this text, they all agree that people do not arrive at spiritual maturity for God to make overtures to them, for God to come into their lives and to start a relationship. And we thank God for that, don't we? In fact, God has made overtures, started relationships with many of us in this room. And the weird thing was, or the wonderful thing was, or the scandalous thing was, perhaps he did it when we were still enemies. Just like Jacob. We were just as much a rogue as Jacob, perhaps more. But Yahweh is still sovereign. He turned and he steered the events of history around so that the covenant blessings to Israel and the nations would come about, even through a rogue like Jacob. And we as well have experienced God's covenant promises to us coming about, through us, even though we're not perfect. We thank God for his mercy and grace. We thank him for being merciful to us, for not dealing with us according to the judgment, which was due to us, really, when you think about it. Our God is a, someone who reconciles. He is a peacemaker. Isn't that wonderful? He's not this angry, capricious figure that the world paints him at, dying to swat at anyone that doesn't keep his list of ten rules. He moves, he reveals, he meets with sinners for their benefit, for their forgiveness and his glory. Romans 5.10 makes the counter-cultural claim. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies. Romans 5.8 says the same thing. God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, God died for us. You know, not alone is God a peacemaker. Uh, he's a God who doesn't, and this is the wonderful thing, he's a God who doesn't hold any grudges. Often when we have fallouts with people that are near to dear with us, there is forgiveness perhaps, but sometimes that forgiveness doesn't run deep. <laughs> when there are moments of tensions again between us and that, perhaps that same person, they're often drawn up again and used as weapons to beat one another with. God is not like that. His, his, his forgiveness is not conditional. It doesn't depend on your performance as a Christian. And we thank God for that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, there's this wonderful verse. He says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't cause guilt to bubble up again for the sins that he's forgiven. He's cleaned the slate with us. You know, Jacob could see how faithful God was after his 21 years of working with Laban. In Genesis 32, we come to this lovely little verse, verse 10, where Jacob prays this to God. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. <laughs> it would not have been the language of Jacob of old, would it, 21 years ago, to call himself the servant of anyone? No, thank you very much. Jacob seems at this stage to have a very different view of himself. 
He's been humbled somewhat. He's still a rough diamond. God still works with him, and God meets with him shortly afterwards again in Peniel, where he wrestles with him and renames him. So Jacob is still, you know, he's about 100 years old now. He's still young spiritually. His faith has matured, and his piety and his love towards God has obviously deepened. And so it should be with us. Let us not expect too much too soon. The journey with God is a slow one of peaks and troughs, of ups and downs, good times and bad times. But at least like Jacob, let us stand firm. Like Isaac, let us stand firm. And like Abraham, let us stand firm in the faithfulness of this great God we have. Let us recognize that he has nothing but goodwill towards us. Nothing but gentleness. Nothing that he delights more than when you come into his presence in prayer. Let's finish with these wonderful lines from um, an old hymn. Praise my soul, King of heaven. I like to, th- I like to um, read some of the old hymns sometimes, but this one is lovely. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand, he gently bears us rescues us from all our foes. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that you're a rescuer. We thank you, Lord, that you've done so much for us in our lives and we didn't deserve it at all when we were enemies. Um, when we were raising our fists to you in rebellion, um, you came in and you revealed yourself to us and you changed our lives. Oh, Father God, let it be our wish and our desire that we should spend our time in your very house, gazing upon your beauty, fellowshipping with you, and sharing this joy with others, Lord. Help us to be people who venture into the unknown like Jacob, maybe not with the same motivations, but Lord, help us to realize that even in our journeys, you are with us. Even our dealings with others who we try and share the gospel with. That we are not alone. It's not through our power that the gospel will be shared, but you are there beside us. It's through your spirit that anything you have ever done with us, Lord, can bear fruit. And we thank this in Jesus' name. Amen.